You're going to love this. Just love it. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together some of our most important recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. Coming up on today's show, Slate's ace legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern explains some very good news for voting rights in North Carolina. But first, Brad's interview with Dr. Nils Gilman of the Bergruen Institute on some very disturbing findings from their Transition Integrity Project. Nothing. Nothing should be taken for granted between here and Election Day, whether you're in a swing state or not in a swing state. Or even beyond Election Day, when the winner of this year's unprecedented presidential contest is likely to be determined. Yes, after Election Day, not on Election Night, as uh, we have been uh, so used to for so many years in this country. In fact, it may be perhaps well beyond Election Day uh, that we... uh, finally learn who will be the next president. That, according to a fascinating and, yes, often terrifying tabletop exercise or war game exercises that were uh, recently gamed out by the Transition Integrity Project. The Transition Integrity Project was organized, according to the group, in late 2019 out of a concern that the Trump administration may seek to manipulate, ignore, undermine or disrupt the 2020 presidential election, and the transition process. TIP, as they call themselves, or TIP, they take no position on how Americans should cast their votes or on the likely winner of the upcoming election. Either major party candidate, they note, could prevail at the polls this November without resorting to dirty tricks. However, They appropriately observe that the administration of President Donald Trump has steadily undermined core norms of democracy and the rule of law and embraced numerous corrupt and authoritarian practices. This, they say, presents a profound challenge for those from either party who are committed to ensuring free and fair elections and the peaceful transition of power and stable administrative continuity in the U.S., In June, the project convened a bipartisan group of over 100 current and former senior government and campaign leaders and other experts in a series of 2020 election crisis scenario planning exercises. The results of all four tabletop exercises, they say, were alarming. That's their word, not mine. Their report on this notes that uh, we assess with a high degree of likelihood that November's election will be marked by a chaotic legal and political landscape. Well, I could have told them that without any exercises. But they add, we also assess that the uh, President Trump is likely to contest the result by both legal and extra legal means in an attempt to hold on to power. 
The group organized four scenario exercises to identify risks to the rule of law or to the integrity of the democratic process during the period from Election Day on November 3rd through Inauguration Day on January 20, 2021, with an eye toward mitigation and or prevention of worst case outcomes. Each of the scenarios developed, they say, was different. In one scenario, the exercise posited that the winner of the election was not known as of the morning after the election and the outcome of the race was too close to predict with certainty. In another scenario they looked at, the exercise began with the premise that Democratic Party candidate Joe Biden won the popular vote and and the Electoral College by a healthy margin. In a third scenario, the exercise assumed that President Trump won the Electoral College vote, but again lost the popular vote by a healthy margin, as was the case in 2016, before he possessed control of the awesome powers of the presidency. The fourth exercise began with the premise that Biden won both the popular vote and the Electoral College by a narrow margin. Teams were assigned to play the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign. Democratic and Republican elected officials participated. The media participated. The judiciary, members of the executive branches of government. A group of more than 100 people in all participated. They were recruited from across the political spectrum. They included a Democratic former governor of a swing state. That was Jennifer Granholm of uh, Michigan. A former RNC chairman, that would be Michael Steele. A Democratic former president chief of staff, that would be John Podesta. David Frum, the Republican former presidential speechwriter. A former Democratic head of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. As well as many senior political operatives, former government officials and members of the media. All of our scenarios, according to TIP co-founder and former Defense Department official and Georgetown law professor Rosa Brooks, all of our scenarios, she told Fox News, all of them ended in both street-level violence and political impasse. She added the law is essentially, it's almost helpless, she said, against a president who's willing to ignore it. Now, she told that to Fox News, which actually plays a key role in most of the scenarios that these folks looked at. Writing at the American Interest recently, Nils Gilman, another co-founder of the group, warned wargaming shows that short of a landslide victory for for Joe Biden in the upcoming elections, we may be headed for a severe constitutional crisis. See? Told you I was concerned about this today. But uh, Gilman also notes that uh, although much attention has rightly been given to the importance of safeguarding the physical integrity of the vote in this year's election, less attention has been paid to the possibilities for serious disruptions to the political and administrative transition between Election Day on November 3rd and Inauguration Day on January 20. And that's true. We've paid a lot of attention to a safeguarding the physical integrity of the vote. But as far as the political disruptions, the administrative disruptions that could occur, well, we haven't talked about that as much. Gilman goes on to say, while there are indeed grave causes for concern about what could happen during these 11 weeks between Election Day and Inauguration Day, there are also many opportunities to mitigate the worst possible outcomes if 
and it's a big if, if those committed to the democratic process begin to plan and act now. Gilman explains in his cautionary report at the American Interest, quote, the bad news in each scenario, other than a Biden landslide, we ended up with a constitutional crisis that lasted until the inauguration, featuring violence in the streets and a severely disrupted administrative transition. The good news, yes, he says there is good news, we also learned a great deal about how to prevent the worst from transpiring. Before he then goes on to detail six major takeaways that could help to mitigate the worst of what could happen from Election Day until Inauguration Day. Here to discuss both the good and bad news, I suspect, is Dr. Nils Gilman. He is an historian, a uh, vice president of programs at Berggruen Institute, and a co-founder of the Transition Integrity Project itself, whose recent work has frankly kept me awake for too many nights in recent days. Dr. Gilman, welcome, I think, to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate you joining us. Really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. By the way, do you call it the Transition Integrity Project? Do you call it TIP or TIP? We call it TIP. All right. Well, your group assessed that the closest analogy to what we may be looking at after the uh, uh, 2020 election may be the election of 1876. You had to go back that far to find anything even close to what you guys expect. This was during the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. You describe uh, your report describes that time as a time of extreme partisan partisanship and rampant disenfranchisement. What happened in 1876 that that uh, reminds you or, I guess, worries you about what could happen this year, Nils? Yeah, that's a great question, Brad. Um, what happened in 1876 was the Civil War ended uh, 11 years earlier in 1865, and mm-hmm. uh, the northern troops were occupying the southern states and engaged in this process of reconstruction and trying to ensure that African Americans would have their civil rights, their voting rights, and so on. And in 1876, President Grant was stepping down uh, after two terms, and there was an election between uh, Sam Tilden, uh, who represented the uh, Democratic Party, and uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, who represented the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. What ended up happening that year was that there were three states where the results of the vote itself, of the popular vote, was contested. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that was uh, Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina. Yep. What ended up happening is you had a situation where there was a, Democrats were controlling uh, the state house and Republicans were controlling the, uh, the governorship, mm-hmm. and they ended up sending competing slates of electors to the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. so this is a, a has to do with a mechanism of our we don't directly elect the president. We don't even directly elect the representatives who are going to go to the Electoral College. We vote for the party we prefer. Mm-hmm. And then a slate of electors is sent on to the Electoral College. Those slate of electors are affirmed mm-hmm. um, or not mm-hmm. in mid-December. And they're sent on to Congress. Congress can then accept those electoral votes or not as they tally all the electoral votes from all the different states. It's only at that point, on January 6, 2021, in this case, that um, the decision about who's actually president will be finally made. Now, in 1876, there were competing slates of electors, and they were not able to adjudicate whether it should be the Democrats, the Democratic slate of electors that was in favor of Tilden, mm-hmm. or the Republican slate of electors that was in favor of Rutherford B. Hayes. And it went down literally to the wire. They were looking like, on the day before the inauguration, which was in early March that year, uh, that there might be competing inaugurations from the oh, two candidates. Man. And uh, President Grant was actually planning on calling out the troops 
to stop Tilden from doing it. And that's part of what led to Tilden finally engaging in a compromise. He said, okay, look, I'll let you win, Rutherford B. Hayes, win the election, mm-hmm. win it by one electoral vote, as it turned out, the closest uh, ever margin in the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Republicans will get to hang on to the White House. Mm-hmm. But the price he exacted was the end of Reconstruction. And what we know was that the result of that was the Northern troops pulled out of the South. In the South, uh, you know, the white people retook control of the political apparatus and posed Jim Crow that lasted for nearly another hundred years with consequences that uh, continue to resonate in our politics down to the present day. Down to today. Yeah, because of what happened after 1876, Jim Crow and so much of the voter suppression that we're seeing right now all comes from that a hundred years ago when they could not agree on the Electoral College slate, which is one of the things we've been talking about on this show. We had uh, former Colorado Senator Tim Wirth on this show a few weeks ago. He was talking about how uh, Donald Trump has access to these extraordinary presidential powers They could be put in place after the election to stop the counting of ballots. You could get into a situation where you have, again, like you uh, describe in 1876, Nils, where the the legislature of of the various states wants one slate of electors, the governor wants another, the voters want another. The reason I asked about that is because that seems like a very serious Potential possibility, something along those lines uh, that could happen, at least according to uh, the, the, the war games, the tabletop exercises that you guys played out. Before we get into some of the details of those exercises uh, and what you found can be done about uh, all of this, what was the hope? What, what was the purpose of an exercise like this other than just to scare the hell out of me? <laughs> well, first of all, I thought you did a really nice job summarizing what we were up to. Thank you. You know, when we first started discussing this, uh, it was late last year in the fall of 2019. A lot of the concerns we had at that time really were about what would happen from an administrative continuity perspective. You know, we have this peculiar system in America where there's an election, uh, you know, in, in early November, and then it's usually 10 or 11 weeks before we get to January 20th. And the idea is, in principle, is that there should be a, a smooth transition of powers. You know, and that should happen even if there's parties switching between parties, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, when Obama won in 2008 over John McCain, obviously George Bush uh, and his administration weren't particularly enthusiastic about handing over power to the Democrats, but by all reports, you know, the Bush team mm-hmm. across all the different administrative agencies, the Department of Defense and Commerce and the EPA and the fine you know, and the Treasury Department, which was dealing with a financial crisis. All of these uh, department leaders prepared briefing memos so that there could be continuity in the administrative handoffs, so that as Obama took over control and the Obama team took over control of various administrative agencies, they'd be able to hit the ground running and actually be able to you know, keep the government doing the things that we all as citizens expect the government to do. Mm-hmm. When Trump came in in 2016, again, Obama wasn't too happy about having to you know, hand over power to the other party, but he, again, his team prepared a bunch of memos And in many cases, the Trump team, which was in its own chaotic process of not knowing how to do a transition, didn't even show up to the briefings that were being prepared to help them do their job. (laughs) The concern that we originally had was, if they weren't even going to show up to the briefings that are there to help them do their jobs, are they going to willingly hand over, you know, go through the process of, you know, making it easier for Mm. Team Biden to manage the administrative process Mm -hmm. starting in 2021? We were skeptical that, you know, they would be interested in doing it or maybe that they would even be capable of doing it. So that's really where we started out talking about, you know, what could happen in those weeks in between. Mm. And what would happen if the Trump team didn't do a good job along the way? You know, already it's certain that if, if Biden manages to win, 
um, he's going to be handed an inbox from hell, right? There's going to be probably 15% unemployment. There's going to be an ongoing pandemic. There's going to be, you know, a lot of social contestation in the country. You'd like him at least to be handed a a functional bureaucracy, but we weren't convinced that that was actually going to take place. So that was really what motivated originally. And we decided to set up a series of exercises that could explore the different things that might happen to disrupt the administrative process. But what we learned in that process was it wasn't just the administrative process that could potentially be disrupted. It was potentially the electoral transition itself yeah. that was subject to disruption. Yeah, that's what I was interested Actually, I mean, you get to the, uh, and, and you detail a, a very disturbing scenario of how this transition would occur in the event that uh, Joe Biden wins, that uh, Trump acknowledges his win, all of the things that could happen, you know, from him pardoning himself to destroying documents to enriching himself to all sorts of things that could go terribly wrong. And they are disturbing, but I'm not even interested yet in that part because there's all of this, uh, you know, chaos that could go on even before we get to such a point where he acknowledges that. And you in your report talk about the fact that the risks can be mitigated for what could happen as of Election Day before we even get to the Electoral College part of this. You say the worst outcomes of the exercise are far from certain. The purpose of this report is not not to frighten, well, you may have failed there, Nils, but uh, to spur all stakeholders to action. Our legal rules and political norms don't work unless people are prepared to defend them and to speak out when others violate them. It is incumbent upon elected officials, civil society leaders, and the press to challenge authoritarian actions in the courts, in the media, and in the streets through peaceful protest. Now, as I say, your report certainly frightened me, and uh, and even before that, I've, I've never been more concerned, frankly, about an election in my 20 years of covering this stuff nearly uh, as I am right now. So even before reading your report, I was uh, very concerned. But has the media covered your report. You cite in all of the scenarios, really, the media's role in helping to mitigate the worst potential outcomes. Has the media covered your report and its findings enough so that the exercise actually accomplishes its purposes? What's interesting is there's been quite a bit of coverage from across the political spectrum. You know, you you, you started with a clip from Donald Trump this morning talking about whether he'd necessarily accept the uh, accept the election. And the first thing he did was say, well, Hillary didn't accept the results of the election in 2016. So whatever. Mm-hmm. The question is not acceptance, right? The mental state of, you know, Hillary in 2016 or Trump this fall when they, you know, lose the vote. The question is what they actually do in response to that. Mm-hmm. This time, the guy who might be potentially in that position is the president of the United States, which Hillary was not in yep. 2016. Um, what we learned from this process of running these you know, these scenario exercises, is that a president of the United States who is unbounded by norms and uninhibited by his own party has an incredible number of things he can do. Now, I'll leave it up to your listeners to decide whether they think that that's a realistic description of this current president. But, you know, the truth is, if you have a president who's in a condition like that, where he doesn't care about whether, you know, we're going to, you know, have respect for the basic integrity of the electoral process, we're going to let that play out naturally, and we don't have a political party that's going to say no to a president who's going to try to cut those things off, then you're in a situation where a whole bunch of things become possible 
that are really outside the experience of anything we've had in our democracy in the last 250 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you, you note, uh, your report notes, that a determined campaign has the opportunity to contest the election all the way until 20, January 2021. You find uh, President Trump, the incumbent, will very likely use the executive branch to aid his campaign strategy, including through the, de- uh, the Department of Justice. We assess uh, that there is a chance the president will attempt to convince legislatures and or governors to take actions, including illegal actions, to defy the popular vote. Well, what type of illegal actions would he press for? Uh, And did your group find that those governors would actually take those actions? Because... You know, uh, I'm not uh, one of the, uh, the the top uh, former officials that you had on your uh, on your panel, but I think they would. I think they would do this for this president, even out even without knowing what those particular uh, illegal actions are. Well, we can talk about the actions in a second, but I want to go back in answering your question to something you mentioned earlier, which is the role of the media and the role of Fox News. I think mm-hmm. is perhaps the single most important media organization for this purpose. Mm-hmm. One thing that's certain, and this certainly came out in the in the games that we played, is that there's going to be an incredible amount of noise about electoral interference by the Russians, by the Chinese. There's going to be anecdotes about individual polling stations. We have you know six thousand precincts across the country, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And are there going to be a, are there going to be ten of those six thousand that have some irregularities to go on? Almost certainly, that happens every year. And the question is then going to be. Do those particular anecdotes become something that the media picks up as a narrative that allows them to establish a basis and establish the political leaders, Trump and Biden in this case, to establish a basis for contesting what appear to be the, le- the legitimate results of the vote? And if they can get a media narrative to stick, then it becomes much more politically possible to engage in, I would call, extra legal modes of contestation. So one thing, for example, that Trump is actually is actively signaling that he wants to do mm-hmm. is he's going to want to have the election called, at least in all the states he's leading in, mm-hmm. on election night. Right. This is despite the fact that we're going to see an enormous amount of voting by mail this year, and that many of those votes are going to take days or maybe even weeks to fully count. So one of the things, this is one of the takeaways from our report, is that we need to teach the American people. And I think it's incumbent on the media to sort of pound this message home over the next weeks before the election is that we're not going to have just an election day where the results are known. We're going to have an election season. It mm-hmm. may be, you know, it may be well into November, maybe even late November and Thanksgiving time before we really know what the full final vote tallies are in all these precincts across the country. Yep. And we need to be patient about letting the process play out. But the point is the Trump administration can potentially do all sorts of things. They can try to have the DOJ these ballots yep. um, that are being being voted in. They can yank the uh, Secret Service protections that uh, the Biden team has because they say, well, he already lost, right? And since he lost, he doesn't need those things anymore. Hmm. They can stop agreeing to cooperate with the administrative transition process and say, oh, well, you know, we don't have to prepare these briefings because, you know, we're not having an administrative transition, right? The, and so on and so forth. There's all these different things that can be done simply because the president controls the executive branch of government. And if he wants to create the impression, the facts on the ground, as they say in the Middle East, that establish that he has one and he's maintaining control, he might be able to get away with it if the media takes his story seriously. And, you know, and we saw this. We saw this before. Uh, those of us who are old enough to remember what happened in 2000, it sounds like 
the exact same thing where uh, the media sort of plays along with whoever declares the narrative, whoever draws it out. And your group advises political leaders to approach this as a political battle, not just a legal battle. And I know that Republicans understand that because that's how they approached 2000. That's how they approach everything. But do you get any sense that Democrats, either uh, those taking part in your exercise or those that you have been talking uh, to since that you've heard from since, do they understand what that means? If even I understand what it means, in other words, if if uh, Donald Trump says, "Well, I'm uh, removing your Secret Service because you've lost the election," he's not uh, making a a legal contest. He's taking a political action and actually declaring a a, a political war of sorts. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think the you know the the question in all these things is, do people follow those orders? Right. I mean, does the Secret Service agree mm-hmm. uh, at that point to say, uh, you know, well, or do they say, actually, you know, maybe we don't know yet and we're going to continue to protect, you know, former Vice President Biden and, 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 and uh, Senator Harris under the normal procedures. Right. So, you know, and I, I do think that the media does have an important role to play in counseling patients. I mean, I should say I'm not connected to either campaign. I'm, I work mm-hmm. for a nonpartisan nonprofit based in downtown Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know what the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign may be thinking about. Um, I do think that part of what's happened with the coverage of the Transition Integrity Project in the media is there's certainly been a ton of discussion about these things. And I would hope that, you know, senior leaders in those campaigns would be taking these, these questions seriously. But the plea I would make would be not really to either campaign, but really to patriots and people who, particularly people in the government who have taken an oath of office to defend the Constitution, that there's some basic principles, which I don't think are partisan at all, which is that first, Every American citizen that wants to vote should be enabled should be enabled to do so mm-hmm. as easily and safely as possible. And second of all, that every one of those votes should be counted properly. I don't think that those are partisan positions. I think those are positions that you know everybody who believes in the process of democracy ought to be able to sign up for. And what's happening, I think, at a lot of state levels, because a lot of this plays out at really you know a state by state level mm-hmm. and really even a precinct by precinct level is what are the legal possibilities and are we going to allow those legal traps to be played? So let me just give you a sense of why what we saw in Florida in 2000 Mm -hmm. is the tip of the iceberg of what we might see this fall. So in Florida in 2000, it was very, very close vote across the whole state. And initially, Gore only wanted the recount to happen in the four counties where he knew that there tend to be more Democratic votes, mm-hmm. right? And that was the first thing that the Bush administration, the, uh, the, the Bush team tried to contest. They said, well, no, it shouldn't just be the Democratic-leaning counties. It should be all the counties. Mm-hmm. And then it should be no counties. And then essentially they ran out the clock and went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, yeah, the clock is over. We're just going to go with the vote as it's already been counted. Right? Right. That's basically what played out in Florida in 2000. Yep. This time around, 20 years later, the degree of granularity that the campaigns know about the kinds of votes that have been cast is, you know, way, way, way more detailed than they knew in 2000. So what the campaigns are going to know this year is they're going to know exactly how many votes were cast in each precinct. They're also going to know who cast provisional ballots and or absentee slash vote by mail ballots. Mm-hmm. And so they're going, to be able to pre- they're going to be able potentially to make their legal strategies granular down to the precinct by precinct level. I want these people on this side of town to get counted and not these precincts on this side of town to get counted. The, there could be like literally thousands and thousands of lawsuits at a you know voting precinct by voting precinct level to decide which votes are going to be counted. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, 
if we engage in a process like that, that's a shame on our democracy. Yeah. Our democracy should be fundamentally about enabling everybody to vote and about having all votes, vote, votes be counted. And if it takes a couple of weeks for that to happen, so be it. The new president doesn't have to come in until January 20th anyway. Well, yeah, I know. And I agree with you. I'm not sure, of course, uh, if if Donald Trump is the one who needs to stop the voting because way more Republicans are going to vote on Election Day uh, and way more Democrats are going to vote on uh, a vote by mail. I'm sure he would be happy to make that claim that we need to stop this. I don't think Joe Biden would do that. And one of the interesting uh, parts of your all of your scenarios, you found time and again, it was the person who sort of acted first, who took the first action, who ended up having an advantage. But since you raised the point of vote counting and counting every vote and the idea that that should not be partisan, well, I got news for you. It is because I've been fighting to count every vote for so many years. I'm constantly called a partisan, generally by whichever party, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, do not want to have all of the votes counted at that point. But you make a very important point that I greatly appreciated in your report. Uh, noting that it is uh, not just important that we have an accurate vote count, but it's important that the public has confidence in that count. Uh, Nils Gilman, I have uh, been making that case in detail, perhaps louder than anyone in this country for uh, going on, like I said, about 20 years now. And elected and election officials of both parties have moved in the opposite direction, making it harder for the public to know, you know, using computers to count their vote, uh, direct recording electronic machines that have no uh, record, no paper uh, trail at all, uh, making it harder and harder for the public to know that the election was not only counted, but counted accurately. Do you see any evidence that elected officials or election officials understand this suddenly now? Because I don't. And I'm very worried that uh, there are a, a million ways to obscure the results so that the public may not have confidence, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, uh, whoever whoever is most affected by this. Well, I do think there's been a wake-up call, especially because of what we saw with the attempted Russian interference in the elections. It's not clear how much effect that had in 2016, but certainly they were trying. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's been quite a bit of effort to sort of secure the physical integrity of voting machines. But you're absolutely right that... But that um, does nothing to, to, to convince the public that the results are accurate. If they can't oversee the process, there's no way for them to know. Right. I mean, I agree with you. I think that what we should do is we should have paper ballots. Paper ballots are easy to audit, easy to recount. Um, voting by mail, one big advantage of that is, you know, it definitely creates a paper trail. Mm -hmm. um, there's some countries like Australia that do all their voting by mail. It's the only way that voting happens. In late July, George W. Bush's former speechwriter and advisor, David Frum, one of the participants in the Transition Integrity Project's War Games scenario of possible outcomes of the 2020 election, wrote at The Atlantic, uh, quote, Donald Trump mused on Twitter about postponing the 2020 election. Trump is getting desperate, writes from more desperate by the day. What might he do? What should he uh, should Americans fear? He notes the good news is that Trump cannot postpone the election or the next presidential inauguration. He has no means to do either of those things. Those are set in law or by the Constitution, nor can he somehow cling to power after Inauguration Day if the electoral vote is certified against him. The bad news is that there is a lot of mischief that can be done with the legal boundaries by a determined president, especially with the compliance 
of the attorney general and enough political allies in the state capitals. The worst news writes from who took part in this uh, transition integrity project exercise is that faced with presidential lawlessness, few of the participants at the TIP project found effective responses. The courts offered only slow, weak, and unreliable remedies. Street protests were difficult to mobilize and often proved counterproductive. Republican elected officials cowered even in the face of the most outrageous Donald Trump acts. And Democratic elected officials lacked the tools and clout to make much difference. Many of the games, he said, turned on who made the first bold move. Time after time, that first mover, at least in these exercises, was Trump. Dr. Nils Gilman of the Bergruen Institute, you found that the side that took action first in almost all of these scenarios ended up having an advantage. That's good to know. But then you note that it was um, the Republicans who held a distinct advantage here, that it was Team Trump who tended to take the first move, whereas uh, the folks on the left were more fractious, didn't know how to move. Well, that's depressing. Maybe true, but depressing. That seems like a huge advantage that Trump already has going in, uh, including even already right now with the actions that he's taking before the election. Yeah, well, Trump's general M.O., in my estimation, is that he tries out a lot of things rhetorically and tries out different things as a matter of practice, right? So, you know, he put... he you know, put out a flyer on potentially postponing the election. He actually got pushback from a bunch of Republicans on that, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, when he put out, you know, efforts to send in DHS forces to uh, put down protesters in Portland, Mm -hmm. he got no pushback whatsoever from Republican elected officials. So you you do see that the Republicans have certain kinds of bright lines that they're not willing to allow the president to cross. But there's a bunch of other things that he's tried um, that, you know, they aren't pushing back on him, right? And so they don't push back on Detroit, excuse me, on, uh, on Portland. And likewise, they haven't pushed back on what he's announced he's doing as he's pulling those, you know, federal forces out of Portland. He said he's going to send them to Cleveland, Detroit, and Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Well, why would he pick those three cities, right? Well, because they're the blue cities in swing states. And it might be really helpful for him to have federal, federal forces on hand, especially if he were to invoke you know, the Insurrection Act or the emergency powers that are uh, accrued to the president since 1976. Mm-hmm. I mean, so one of the things we really learn here is it's not so much that Trump has to engage in illegal activities, is this, this exercise really showed the incredible power that has been accrued into the presidency um, really over the last, you know, arguably it's been increasing since the 1860s, but certainly since the Cold War, the president has become, you know, a much more unitary much more powerful entity. And the only things at this point that really put serious constraints on the presidency, particularly in a moment of crisis, are whatever moral and normative restraints that the person of the president happens to have. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Then we are in trouble. Uh, What, uh, man, Nils, what surprised you of all of the uh, various scenarios? And again, uh, except for a landslide by uh, by Joe Biden in both the Electoral College and the popular vote, you found that there were looking at a potential constitutional crisis, potentially violence in the streets. What surprised you most throughout the uh, various sessions? I guess you had four different sessions. Was there anything that jumped out that uh, you, you wouldn't have seen uh, coming into these exercises? You know, I'm not sure um, 
I guess I was surprised by just how many tools are available to a normatively uninhibited presidency. I mean, I had mm. some idea about this, you know, but when you saw how many moves there are uh, that you can make, that was a surprise. The other thing that was, I guess I'm not sure I was surprised by it, but it was definitely confirmed is that, you know, the presidency is this incredibly powerful entity, right? And if it acts in a really concentrated way, you know, it can do incredible things, right? And those things can be incredibly good or they can be incredibly bad. The nature of the opposition in this country is that it's much more fragmented, right? And that's, that's, that's actually not a partisan point. It's not about Trump or about the Democrats or Republicans. It just has to do with the asymmetric nature of the executive branch, which is, you know, increasingly centralized, powerful, and unitary, versus all the other agencies and the legislative branch and the judiciary and the state and local governments that are just a naturally more fragmented and fractious mm-hmm. set of institutions. And so it's much harder to organize them. I guess the third thing that was a bit of a surprise to me is it really became clear that political mobilization into the streets is almost certainly going to be decisive, partly because it will enormously drive the way the media covers the story. Mm-hmm. If millions and millions of people turn out into the streets and demand political integrity, demand that the process move forward with integrity, with justice, with patience, that will make a huge difference for how the media perceives what's legitimate. Um, now, the problem we're seeing, of course, is that there's already a situation where there's mobilization and counter-mobilization of people on the left, people on the right. You know, we saw some really pretty scary scenes in Portland of it's not clear who these people are. It's not clear if there's, you know, adjunct provocateurs mm-hmm. or false flag operations. Those things are going to happen, too. Right? Yep. Yep. And we're not going to know for sure. Like, is the violence that's springing up, is this organically coming out of these people or is it being intentionally instigated, perhaps by, you know, foreign actors? We know that the Russians tried in 2016 to have a Democratic protest group and a Republican protest group meet at the same time, the same place, I believe it was in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Ended up not being able to organize that. But, you know, if people are legitimately trying to turn out in the street to protect their guy and protect the integrity of the process as they see it, there's a potential for very serious political violence in this country. And yet, I think we have an obligation to come and protest peacefully and demand that the process go through to the end with integrity. Well, we have to uh, hit the streets and protest, uh, but your report also finds that it was generally when and if violence broke out, it was whichever side uh, began the violence ends up paying a, a, a political price. But as you noted, and as we saw in the, uh, the, the George Floyd protests and so forth up in Minneapolis, there were, in fact, right-wing provocateurs out there who were touching off a lot of, you know, what what eventually became riots and fires and looting. So it's a who uh, I mean, it, it, it's a it, it's a very uh, brittle uh, circumstance we could be looking at here, a, a very dangerous circumstance. I got to get to another quick break here. But very uh, quickly, Nils, did the presidential the PADs, the I think the presidential emergency authorization documents, those are sort of those secret presidential powers that. Trump has hinted that he has, and other people uh, have have said that, in fact, he has, that were given to the presidency back uh, during the Eisenhower era, uh, largely to deal with emergencies like nuclear war and so forth. Did the use of those PADs come into your uh, exercise here, or or no, because nobody really knows what they actually are? Well, there was one uh, of the exercises where uh, the team playing Trump, and I should say, you know, obviously... This is not a prediction. This is just based on the people who were there playing those roles. Uh, did try to invoke emergency powers, and then that was contested in the courts, 
And one of the things we found is that people who were playing the courts and the Roberts court in particular, you know, Justice Roberts, I think, is a very strong institutionalist and they try throughout his term as chief justice to, to the extent possible in these highly polarized times, stay out of overtly political activity and to try to stay neutral. You know, there's a very large possibility that I think if things go to the Supreme Court, the Roberts Court will do everything they can not to seem like they're putting the fingers on the scale to say this is fundamentally a political issue, that the political echelons and the political branches of government need to sort out who actually won this election. They don't want to get involved. Boy, I'm worried if we have to count on uh, Chief Justice John Roberts to save this country, we may be in even more trouble than I fear. Nels, I got to let you, I'm sorry, I got to let you go. I told you I had a lot to ask you about. I could talk to you for hours. I hope you might not mind coming back in the future uh, and, and talk about more as this moves forward, particularly as things unfold and as we begin to look at a transition that you had initially uh, convened this project to, to look at, sir. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on, Brad. Really appreciate it. That was Brad's recent interview with Dr. Nils Gilman, historian and vice president of programs at the Bergruen Institute and co-founder of the Transition Integrity Project. Coming up next on Bradcast Recounted, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern on some much-needed good news on voting rights in North Carolina. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. <laughs> yeah, we really do need some uh, new Carolina songs. If anyone's got some, uh, my email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. Let me know. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. We're speaking with the great Mark Joseph Stern, legal reporter at Slate. And yes, we've got some bona fide good court news regarding voting today out of perhaps the swingiest of all swing states, certainly one of the most closely divided, and that would be North Carolina of all places. Yes, good news out of North Carolina on voting. And it is good news unless Mark Joseph Stern decides to ruin it for us, as he sometimes <laughs> does. Uh, but to get there, let me I've got to very briefly sort of go through the state of Florida to under, underscore the importance of this. I'm going to try to do this really quickly, Mark, and you can correct me if I screw up. But in 2018, Florida voters adopted a statewide ballot initiative by a huge bipartisan 65 to 35 point landslide uh, to restore voting rights to former felons in what was at the time one of just about three states which barred those with felony convictions from voting for life. The state's new Republican governor at that point, Ron DeSantis, uh, who won his election on the same ballot by less than a, a single percentage point, he quickly asked the GOP-dominated state legislature to pass a bill that would essentially gut 
that voters uh, constitutional amendment for initiative by requiring that before former felons can register to vote, they have to pay off all of their court imposed fines and fees. Well, that law was adopted by the Republican state legislature, and it was immediately challenged in court by voting rights groups. Who won the case? The federal judge overseeing it ruled that the law was in fact unconstitutional. It amounted essentially to a poll tax because if you had the money to pay off the fines and fees, you're allowed to vote. But if you didn't have the money, you couldn't. Seemingly the very definition of a poll tax. So more good news for Florida voters. However, DeSantis and the Republicans appealed the ruling, which has now been stayed, I believe, by the appellate court. So for now... And for the critical 2020 presidential election, that uh, unconstitutional law, I believe, will remain in place, potentially barring some one and a half million former felons in Florida from being able to vote. And crucially, one out of every four black male Floridians from being able to participate in this year's elections, which now brings us to North Carolina which, while allowing felons uh, who have completed their sentences in the state, as well as all uh, parole and probation, though they're allowed to register to vote, but it also, uh, North Carolina law, had also barred those who had not paid court-imposed fines and fees from being allowed to vote. In, In their case, however... The fines and fees law was about 150 years old, and it put it was put in place following Reconstruction after the Civil War in order to, as the uh, state judge determined last week, to specifically prevent black voters from voting. Now, this law in North Carolina has no small consequences in a state like that. Barack Obama barely won it in 2008 by about 13,000 votes less than half a point. In 2012, it swung back to uh, Mitt Romney by about two points. In 2016, Donald Trump won the state while on the same statewide ballot. North Carolina elected a Democratic governor. So yes, every vote counts in North Carolina. And as what I said is the swingiest of swing states. Now, Mark Joseph Stern reports at Slate this week, however, that on Friday, A North Carolina court dramatically expanded the number of voters eligible to participate in the 2020 election by ruling that the state may not disenfranchise citizens who own fines, who owe owe fines, fees and other debts from a felony conviction. And Mark reports that while the court limited its order to those affected by uh, wealth based voter suppression, That would be a poll tax. Its uh, reasoning portends a broader ruling in the near future that could restore voting rights to 70,000 more North Carolinians on probation or parole. But before we get to those 70,000 more, Mark, the Friday ruling, if I understand it correctly, means that 100,000 North Carolinians previously denied the right to vote in the state are right now eligible to register and vote in this year's presidential election? That is correct. That is the upshot of the ruling. Uh, I should say that the, the state of North Carolina, much like the state of Florida, has really relied on a kind of chaos 
and negligence to keep people disenfranchised. And a lot of those 100,000 people may not have known whether they could actually vote before. The, the system here for letting formerly incarcerated people know whether or not they're allowed to vote is incredibly opaque. Mm. And really, the state exploits it to frighten people out of even registering. This is something we see in all of these uh, red states with voter suppression laws, right? The confusion is the point. Mm. So some of these 100,000 people may have been able to vote before, weren't sure. Some of them could not vote at all. And all of them were afraid of prosecution if they tried. This decision clears the way for all of them to move forward, to register to vote, to cast their ballot without any fear of prosecution, because a court has now confirmed beyond any doubt that they have a fundamental constitutional right to vote in the 2020 election. This is huge news in a state like North Carolina, as as close as it has been in recent elections. And right now, I think uh, the real clear politics um, pre-election polling average puts Biden about one and a half points ahead of Trump, essentially a statistical tie there. So another 100,000 votes, again, in a state that went to Obama by 13,000, could make a just a huge difference. You write, however, about how laws like this are, in fact, quote, rooted in overt white supremacy. And that that point came into play in in the New York. uh, I'm sorry, in the North Carolina case. Can you can you describe uh, what came out in that case as you quoted it in your story? Yeah. And and I think we have to give credit to the, the folks who litigated this case. They just did a brilliant job on the history, hired Uh, North Carolina historians to dig into why the state began disenfranchising uh, former felons in the first place. And the answer, unsurprisingly, was overt racism and an attempt to, quote, preserve white supremacy. Basically what happened was after Reconstruction, as federal troops were literally pulling out of the state, uh, a bunch of racists convened to try to figure out how to stop black people from voting, and this was their preferred solution because they discovered that uh, they could easily disenfranchise people who had been convicted of a crime, any crime, Mm -hmm. and then just go around accusing black people of crimes, convicting them in kangaroo courts, and stripping them of the right to vote forever. That was the goal and the purpose and the effect of this law. And frankly, if you look at how it's working today, not much has changed. Black people in North Carolina are dramatically disproportionately disenfranchised compared to white people. And, you know, we all know that that is no coincidence that our criminal justice system operates in a very racist manner and prevents people from participating in their own democracy. That's what's going on here, and that's what the court really acknowledged at the outset. This was an impressive ruling because it didn't pretend like there wasn't something malicious going on in the background here. Mm -hmm. The court didn't pretend like this law just suddenly sprung onto the books. It actually went through the history of why it exists and talked about how the only three black state representatives in the 1970s in North Carolina tried to repeal it, but whites stood in their way and refused to let them repeal it. Uh, Uh, And mm -hmm. one of those black representatives actually testified in this case and said, I tried my best, but these folks, these white folks, just wouldn't let us repeal this law and restore full civil rights to our community. So this is a fundamentally racist law, and the court acknowledged as much, and I think that's a really important thing for judges to do. You detail in your report at Slate.com, Mark Joseph Stern, this, uh, that it's in fact an 1877 law and that when it was passed the arguments made were that it was necessary to stop quote the honest vote of a white man 
from being, quote, offset by the vote of some Negro. Its purpose, alongside other Jim Crow measures like the literacy test, was to, quote, secure white supremacy. Who, who are you quoting in that? Where, where do we get those quotes that this was specifically meant to offset the vote of some Negro? Because, boy, I'll tell you, that's resonating in my brain 150 years later when the state of Florida just now, just, you know, a year or two, a year or so ago, passed this law to do exactly the same thing that North Carolina was doing to uh, offset the vote by uh, some Negro back in 1877. God, when you put it that way, it's so bleak. Florida, as you know, is my home state. Oh, <laughs> but sorry. I think you're, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think you're absolutely correct that that is still kind of what's, what's going on here. So these quotes come from a really terrific expert report uh, that was filed in this case by a UNC historian where he, he's an expert on this law, and he dug back into the, uh, the record of the floor notes that went that that uh, from when legislators were debating this bill and the convention notes from when uh, legislators came together to draft new laws and eventually new constitution for the state of North Carolina. You know, th- these folks weren't shy about their purpose. They didn't pretend like they were up to anything else. They thought that this was a noble endeavor, and so they actually said out loud what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. You can go back and read all this stuff in the historical record, and I link to these reports in my piece um, and. So I think what's really changed today is that when Florida Republicans try to do the same thing, they pretend that it's about, uh, I don't know, honoring lawfulness in the Constitution, and they just try to conceal the fact that it's really about making sure that, yep. you know, white people's votes aren't offset by racial minorities. Very quickly here, uh, you report that another ruling could be coming from this same court, uh, though I don't know if it would be in time for the 2020 election that would lo- allow, on top of the 100,000 that I, I believe, by the way, they, they can, that, is that ruling done? They can vote today, uh, register to vote and vote today, these uh, 100,000 uh, who have uh, fines and fees outstanding still? Oh, absolutely, and they should. Uh, okay, good. Well, th- this uh, court could also allow another 70,000 that are currently disenfranchised. Uh, how is that group different, this other 70,000? Yeah, so these are individuals who are still on parole or probation, and for reasons other than their inability to pay fines and fees. So, you know, courts impose all of these fines and fees in North Carolina. As soon as you encounter them, you have to pay hundreds of dollars just to appear in court, just to have a public defender. You have to pay for your own probation. And the state will actually keep you on probation if you can't afford to pay off those fines and fees, which incurs another several thousand dollars of debt each year. It's really a vicious circle. Mm-hmm. So what the court did was that anyone who's disenfranchised solely because of that, because of these fines and fees, which is a huge number of people, you can vote right away. Uh, The rest of you, people who are, say, on parole for some kind of drug crime, right, who are out of prison, who are free but are still under state supervision, we're not going to extend to you the right to vote. Not yet. But we're going to hold a trial on that question Mm. in the near future. And we actually think that you've made a very strong case. And once we have fleshed out the history here, uh, we're probably going to decide that this entire law was motivated by illicit racism and strike down the whole disenfranchisement Mm. scheme. So I think this is... This is one earthquake, but it's, uh, there's going to be another one in the near future because North Carolina state judiciary is very progressive. There are a lot of badass women of color on North Carolina <laughs> state.
States Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And I think these individuals are going to say, we cannot tolerate a racist law from 150 years ago. Yeah. We have to move forward. Now, that won't come before the election, I suspect. No, uh, it that won't, second part of this. But with a, I think, is a seven to one a liberal majority on the uh, North Carolina State Supreme Court? Six to- Six, six to one right six, now. Yeah. Six to one. Yeah, that means that because this, and this is crucial, because this is a, a state ruling, not a federal ruling, it therefore cannot be put on hold by the GOP's stolen U.S. Supreme Court under the so-called Purcell principle that they now claim prevents last-minute changes to election laws. This is a done deal. Any appeal would simply go to those uh, badasses on the uh, six to one uh, state Supreme Court, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. And uh, th- th- those those ladies in the majority are not going to put up with any of the Republicans' nonsense. I can tell you that with a lot of confidence. So this is, you can tell me with confidence this is bona fide good news. There's yes. no secret appeals down the road. Some way, Bill Barr, Donald Trump's going to come <laughs> in and ruin all of this. This is good news. We can leave today's show with a smile on our face. Everyone should be on their feet, dancing in joy. Mark Joseph Stern is the gleeful uh, reporter at uh, legal reporter at Slate.com. By the way, he has a comprehensive article on voting information for all 50 states that uh, wherever you are, you are going to need to make your plan to vote this year. You can do it now in, uh, well, pretty soon in any event, in a number of states around the country. Uh, So check that out. That is also at Slate.com. I will try to link to that uh, article. Mark Joseph Stern, great to talk to you again after your long summer off. It won't be that long before you uh, come back and I torture you here some more. Okay, so the the best kind of torture there is. Thank you, sir. Find his work at Slate.com and on the Twitter's at MJS underscore DC. Thank you, brother. Always a pleasure. And that's all for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks to Dr. Nils Gilman of the Bergruen Institute and Mark Joseph Stern of Slate. And of course, thanks to you for spending part of your day with us. You can download today's program or any other anytime for free at bradblog.com. And that is thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com donate to help us continue to stay independent on your public airwaves during these unprecedented times. Follow and and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Drop us an email and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. We'll be back soon. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. And as Brad likes to say, good luck, world. Good luck, world.